Welcome to Live from the Future, where we explore frontier tech that will change the world. My name is Wiz, and you can find me on Twitter at WhimsicalWiz. Unfortunately, Elon Musk could not make it today, but in his place, we've got Peter Rojas from Betaworks to talk about the future of synthetic reality. Peter Rojas was the co-founder of a few very popular technology blogs, including Gizmodo, Engadget, and Joystick. The latter two, of two were part of Weblogs, which was acquired by AOL in 2005. Um, he later co-founded the consumer electronics social networking site Gadget, which mm -hmm. AOL also acquired in 2013. And post-acquisition, Peter stayed on for a couple of years as their VP of strategy and director of AOL's experimental products group. Uh, Peter is now a partner at Betaworks, a startup studio in seed stage VC that invests in frontier tech based here in New York and also in San Francisco, where Peter is today. Peter, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I should distinguish, I don't work for the original Betaworks. I just work for Betaworks Ventures, um, which are two separate entities now. Um, and so uh, I often people ask me about the the studio incubation side of things. And I, I have no experience uh, on that for Betaworks. I've never been involved in that side of things. So uh, uh, I, I get a lot. I get probably like one email a week about it. Oh, wow. Um, um, and it's, uh, you know, I, I try to refer to somebody on that side, um, but uh, I just focus on the, Matt and I just focus on the investment side of things. Got it. Cool. Um, great. Let's jump in. Let's take a moment and teleport to the future together. Are you ready? Okay. Yep. Awesome. Um, it is now November 2000 and 2029, 10 years from now. Paint me a picture of how synthetic reality shows up in our daily lives. Yeah, uh, so, uh, and just for context, you know, what I mean by synthetic reality is really thinking about how um, uh, AI and machine learning are transforming the ways in which we're able to create and generate um, new forms of media, new forms of uh, new experiences, uh, new kinds of interfaces in which we are able to interact uh, with computing and with, you know, with each other. Uh, and so um, it's something where, you know, in some respects, we've already seen, you know, some of this in, in 2019, so 10 years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, today in 2029, um, you know, what we see is that uh, we see it expressed in a lot of different ways. I mean, one is the ability for uh, somebody with a, just a phone uh, and the average phone in their pocket is able to create hyper-realistic uh, you know, computer graphics, uh, computer graphic imagery. Uh, so, you know, something that would have taken, you know, tens of millions of dollars and, and you know, thousands or tens of thousands of, you know, hours of uh, an illustrator or animator's time to create a Pixar movie in the 90s or the 2000s. Uh, now, you know, an 11 year old can create that in their pocket. Um, and it's not just as good, it's actually higher quality. Um, you know, and, and some of that is computing power done locally at the edge, but a lot of it is actually accessing, um, you know, cloud-based uh, GPUs, which, um, you know, if you can imagine uh, what was powerful in 2019, I mean, just the, the ability, uh, you know, the GPU power that you'll have in, in a cloud-based server will be you know, absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, uh, and will cost very, very little. In 2019, we were on our way to 5G. Now in 2029, we've got 10G. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah uh, Verizon is trying to sell us on 6G right now. <laughs> And uh, get us to pay for that. Um, uh, you know, um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm super excited about like you know the, uh, about 5G and, and you know what Verizon, AT&T, and you know all the uh, 
they're trying to you know uh, bring here in the U.S. Um, but okay, the, so an eleven-year-old can make Avengers on their phone, right? Avengers Studio quality you have, stuff. You have the, that actually the ability show up to, in our daily lives. Um, so exactly. So you have you know new forms of of uh, uh, content which manifests itself. And so you think about the kinds of social media content we had twenty you know ten years ago in twenty nineteen. Uh, it was uh, you know people were making you know video short videos they were able to uh, edit them and and add you know some basic effects and things like that now people are able to create uh you know incredibly high quality uh you know super realistic content uh videos um shows uh game like you know experiences um for very very little in fact you know they proliferate there's we're inundated with them um, but there's still the problem of sort of quality, right? Which like finding the good ones. And so, you know, people create interesting little things and they circulate virally. Um, but then you also, um, just in the same way that, you know, YouTube was able to democratize, uh, you know, uh, video creation um, and, and new types of series and, and types of programming, um, you know, by opening it up and by basically saying it just shouldn't cost you any money to host a show. Um, and as the cost of production came down, we saw lots of new kinds of content. So, you know, just as we had with YouTube, there was uh, new types of series, new types of fictional program, new types of nonfiction program, people hosting things, people just, you know, shooting videos of their gameplay and stuff like that. I think, you know, in 2029 with synthetic reality, we see people, uh, you know, creating new types of, uh, you know, essentially computer generated animated uh, shows, content that again is just opens up the creative abilities in ways that you never could before. You're not limited by a special effects budget or your talent as an animator. You really are able to, uh, in a sense, describe what it is that you want and have that uh, expressed in, you know, as a, as graphic, you know, in graphical format uh, is video. And so uh, I think it's going to open up a whole new kind of, uh, you know, forms of creative expression. I think that you will have, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, generations, now, people who are, you know, adults now sort of deriding uh, kids is not really putting real work into creating things. Um, just in the same way that, uh, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, people were sort of deriding YouTube as not being real, right? Or podcasts as not being real. I mean, I went through a whole thing as an early blogger as blogging not being real work, not being yeah. real journal, real writing. Um, and now nobody makes that argument <laughs> anymore. Um, I think in 2019, I we saw some of this democratization of, of creative abilities, um, I would say change the way that people interact or at least start to change the way. Like as an example, TikTok makes it really easy for people to make really creative and interesting and fun videos. And how we saw that actually change behavior is people moved away from like stupid, like, hey, here's an Instagram clip of like me doing nothing. It's like actually taking time to script something funny and interesting yeah. and like involve their friends. And there's two parts there for me. One is like the being mindful in what they're actually creating. But the second part that I think is super interesting is I think it's more playful. Like creating a scripted video with your friends is way more playful and social than me posting and broadcasting an Instagram story. Like I don't think, I think social is lost in the social media of 2019, Instagram, Facebook. Well, you know, if you think about it as, um, you know, and this is why I say like, you know, it becomes really about like the, the quality um, that people are able to, to, to create and that the hard part is being creative um, in what you're doing. And so once you remove the, 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 once you reduce the barriers between your idea and your ability to express that idea, mm. um, you know, it, it means that um, like, like TikTok, for example, um, TikTok, uh, 
did two things really well. One was had a really awesome AI and personalization engine. So people were able to like when something was good um, and people liked it, it was able to circulate. That was yeah, interesting. That's not not just influencers got millions of likes. Yeah. Anyone had the ability to get yeah. millions of likes. But I think the other thing is, um, you know, the tools that we have to be able to create the videos um, became incredibly easy to use. And so the barrier between having an idea and being able to realize that idea, that gap narrowed, right? That there's a, a, a narrower gap between that. And I think that's what synthetic reality, you know, is doing and will continue to do is to narrow that gap um, between what you want to do and your ability to actually do that. And I think we see that over and over and over again in, in all sorts of mediums. I mean, it's certainly, if you think about, um, you know, again, if you go back to when, you know, synthesizers were introduced into, and drum machines were introduced into music, a lot of people derided that as not being really music, right? Yeah. But a lot of, but it, it, it enabled new forms and styles of music because people were able to say, I'm now able to create the music in my head and get it out there, you know, in this form that I couldn't do because, you know, either I didn't have either the technical ability to be able to perform, you know, the instrument, or it was a kind of music that was really almost impossible for people to play or be able to, to you know, um, construct new styles or forms of music um, by using kinds of sounds that were not organic, you know, coming from, you know, uh, actual instruments, right? And so I, I think that... I was going to say, it sort of, sort of enables that creator spirit, right? It's like people yeah. have this creativity in them. The trouble is being able to actually express it. And some people are more talented than, talented than others in being able to express it. But I think you said lowering that gap in friction allows more people to express yeah. their creative spirit. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with blogging, right? Where blogging was um, a lot of people wanted to write, but, um, you know, being a, being good enough to write for a magazine or a newspaper was, uh, you know, and certainly there was a limit to the amount of, uh, you know, column space available um, in those outlets. And so a lot of people, we saw an explosion of creativity because people, they could write for free. You didn't have to spend hundreds of dollars to, you know, get uh, CMS and a, so a website and, you know, all those things. And so, you know, to me, the constant theme is around the democratization of people's ability to be creative. And so synthetic reality is around, democratizing that around, you know, CGI, right? Around computer graphics and the ability to, um, you know, express ourselves, you know, through that, uh, through that medium. Uh, you know, I also think uh, we're gonna see, uh, you know, another big part of this is the number of sort of virtual beings um, or, uh, um, you know, characters, synthetic characters that we, you know, that inhabit our, our worlds. And I think, you know, the advancements that, you know, we'll see around natural language processing, around the ability to do synthetic speech, around the ability to, um, you know, create um, avatars which kind of either uh, cross over the, the Uncanny Valley or stay on the right side of it and are sort of playful and fun and engaging. Uh, and I think that, again, what's going on there is it's not just about democratizing our creative abilities. It's about democratizing our ability to interact with the computer and to be able to express what we want and have that task performed. Right. And I think that that mm -hmm. um, is one reason why there's an attractiveness to things like conversational interfaces, to audio, you know, voice based interfaces, to audio interfaces. And we're still, you know, in 2019, we were still at a very, very early, you know, phase for that. Um, but, you know, now 10 years later in 2029, um, I, I look great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Me as well. You yeah. Better lighting. Uh, yeah. You haven't aged a bit. Um, better office background. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, uh, you know, um, but I think that that uh, for a lot of, um, you know, I, I think if you think about the history of computing, it has always been around uh, an evolution of 
the interface and um, making it easier and easier for us to interact with a computer to be able to get perform the task that we want to you know get out of it. And that's why when we went from you know mainframes to uh, uh, was it mini computers and then mini computers to PCs, um, there's every step of the way. Uh, you know, uh, an advancement in the ease of use of the interface. And again, you, the funny thing is, you know, when we introduced, I mean, you're way too young for this, but when, uh, when Windows and, you know, these sort of uh, graphical user interfaces were introduced, there was pushback. It wasn't real computing. Real computing is on a command line, right? Um, and the funny thing is before that, you know, command line was seen as like, kind of like not real compared with like, you know, punch cards, right? Um, and for the so, record, uh, my first computer was a 386 with MS-DOS, and I had okay. the whole manual so you know, on how to, how to yeah. use command line. Yeah. And I, I you know, and, I've and aged and well, I, as you said. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm still someone who's partial to it. I mean, you know, I, I, uh, you know, like a run of a Raspberry Pi, and like, you know, you got to mess around with the command line to get, you know, to get fully, you know, yep. full value out of it. But, um, but you know, for most people, um, you know, computing is something that uh, uh, when the friction has been, when the friction to interaction is reduced, um, the usage goes up and people are able to get the things they want out of it. And so let, let me let me drill down on that. Yeah. Something that we talked like I get that these new forms of creation allow the democratization via lower friction and entry points. And I get that, you know, we've seen adoption of these computers and systems over time that we talked about as a result of lower friction as well. But what I would ask is what, what's below that lower level of friction? And this is something we talked about previously before the episode is what are the underlying human traits that are, that are driving that? Because I mean, just because you make something easy to do or easy to use, I would say does not necessarily mean that people are actually gonna use it. Like it still needs to be something that they want to use. And well, I think, I think there's two parts to it. I think that there are things that people uh, want to do and then things that people don't realize that, that they want to do. So I think that if you go back to the beginning of the smartphone era to say like 2002, 2003, sure. um, you know, I, I had a Trail 600 in 2003. Um, and I remember, you know, showing it to people at the time and they're like, well, why would I want a smartphone? <laughs> you know, and I was like, well, like you can do email and like I had, uh, you know, uh, games on there and like apps. I th I'm trying to remember if I had Google, like a earlier version of Google Maps on there or not. Um, yeah, those were still the Netscape days. Um, no, no, this isn't, this is post Netscape, but, um, uh, you know, but, but this was, uh, you know, the idea of being able to like, you know, have an always on um, computer in my pocket um, was really appealing. I could Google things, right? Um, anywhere. Uh, and, um, and, and I think, you know, I showed that to a lot of people are like, well, why, why would I care? <laughs> and then the iPhone comes out and people are like, oh, now like I see, and it wasn't even the first year of the iPhone really, it was really with things like Instagram and like these kind of applications that really tapped into things that people really cared about, which is like, um, you know, like I think if you go back 15 or 20 years ago and you said, hey, wouldn't it be amazing if you could post your photos, you know, so that everybody in the world, your, your, your photos for every, you know, your vacation snapshots for everyone in the world to see. Most people would say, not interested, yeah. right? Um, but it turns out that like, you know, we actually enjoy the process of um, sharing those things. And I'm someone who actually doesn't use Instagram, but, um, you know, most people enjoy sharing those things with others, right? And having that sort of, um, and, you know, there's a lot of like, obviously, we're experiencing a lot of the negative, uh, you know, externalities around the social stuff, which, you know, we could talk for hours about that, right? It's well, a well-trod uh, subject. Um, but I think that, um, you know, what we found is that, um, when you reduce the friction to computing, and it's not just about the interface on the phone, it's about the fact that it is portable with you all the time. 
uh, and something that has a, and has a consistent high-speed connection, uh, and it has also a camera, right? And has other like input mechanisms. So we, I think we think just about the screen, but the camera is also an interface. It's also an input mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. It's about yep. a way for taking the world around you, around you and inputting it into the computer. And I think again, that's something that's really under like underappreciated about smartphones versus other computers, right? Uh, and so, um, you know, to me, the thing that uh, we keep coming back to is that when you offer connectivity and, um, you know, easier to use interfaces, people do find new uses that we didn't necessarily think of before. And this is why, you know, the, like 5G is interesting because, you know, right now there's a little bit of like, well, like, you know, it's 5G, but is it like just the same things faster or like there are new things that end up emerging? And I look at it as, you know, this is a question that is best was best answered six years ago, right? In 2023, right? Like we're a few years in and, you know, people, founders uh, and, and, you know, people experimenting came up with really uh, counterintuitive, maybe or non-apparent uses for the lower latency, higher speed connection that, you know, weren't apparent to us in 2019. Just in the same way that a lot of things around, um, you know, like smartphones, didn't manifest themselves until we had, uh, you know, ubiquitous LTE connections and uh, and phones with like higher quality cameras and uh, fast enough software and enough memory. And all of a sudden, you know, Instagram again to come back to that example because it's sort of the 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 you know such a great example. But sure. it's something that, uh, you know, a couple of years earlier was too, would have been too early, and people did try to build, um, you know, mo like mobile photo blogging <laughs> products prior to Instagram. Just yep. Not, people didn't have fast enough connections or the phones weren't good enough or the cameras weren't good enough. Um, and so I think when you have this, uh, you know, when things coincide like that, um, really interesting things can happen. Using that Instagram example, like I understand that a lot of things came together for Instagram to have low enough friction where people felt comfortable sharing and posting. Something they used to describe that process that was the joy of sharing. And I would say that prior to Instagram, humans have always had that joy of sharing. Like before Instagram, there was like photo albums that we would like print out photos and like put them into a photo album. And like before that, there was like stories around the fire, right? I can't help but think that underneath the reduction of friction and the new technologies and, and all the things that we can layer on top, it still comes back down to that human innate desire, joy of sharing, joy of creating, whatever it may be. And I'm wondering if that's what is driving the adoption of these things. Like for sure, the like, the lower friction in the technology, like the use of the technology and like whatever. And I think as you and I as nerds, like we care about that stuff, right? But like, if we look at the innate human qualities below, I, I guess I wonder what drives some of that. Like we were talking about synthetic characters. Yeah, I mean- 2019, Lil Michaela, like what, what, what's the innate human quality that drives people wanting to interact with those synthetic avatars? Yeah, I mean, look, people, you know, there's, there's, there's a handful of things that people really like to do. And, and the reason why the internet, you know, writ large has been so successful is that people do really like interacting with each other. It drives yep. us crazy, but uh, you know, it also makes us furious. Um, but you know, we do, we do really like um, interacting, um, being, being seen, right. Being recognized. And, and again, we all experience that in different ways. Like I, you know, um, like I don't use Facebook or Instagram at all and don't really care about that, sure. um, but yeah. I'm doing a podcast, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's why like the tagline for our fund is like, you know, investing in the future of how we connect, right? Because I think, you know, fundamentally, like that's, you know, what we care about. And I think, 
again, you know, we're seeing some of, you know, in 2019, you know, we saw some of the, the downsides to everyone being connected and, and um, you know, some of the negative things that happened to that. Yep. But, you know, to tie it back to like the virtual beings. Um, yeah, because you know, connecting we, between humans makes sense to me but how do we do we get that same feeling of connection when it's with virtual beings with like things like Loma Kayla or like hug and face or whatever it may be yeah so um here's the thing we have always had characters right yep, characters yep. are a way of human expression and human interaction and we interact with and through characters um in part because characters are ways are kind of you know their archetypes are ways that we are able to understand ourselves and the world around us right and mm. so if you go back to, I mean, you know, have you read the Epic of Gilgamesh? I have not. You should. It's the first story, right? It's like the first human story we have recorded. Um, okay. It's amazing. Um, I will check it out. And, uh, you know, what's so powerful about Gilgamesh and why it was such a story that, like, you know, was repeated is because it had these sort of two archetypal characters, um, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, where, 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 you know, Gilgamesh was this king of Sumeria in Sumeria, you know, his best friend dies and he tries to go on this quest to find immortality, right? Mm. And it's a story that everyone can relate to, which is a sort of like, you know, we all know we're going to confront death, right? And um, and so, you know, characters, whether they are as epic as, you know, Gilgamesh or Star Wars or whatever, or as silly as, you know, Mario, right? Um, sure. They are all ways in which we are able to, um, you know, under better understand ourselves and understand the world around us and think through our relationships with other people. And so I think, you know, virtual characters, in some way, we already do interact with virtual characters, in part with whenever, whenever time you play a game, right? But you're the virtual character, like if you play Red Dead Redemption, um, you're the virtual character in a way, yep. uh, interacting with a bunch of other virtual characters. Um, and you're playing that character. And I think, um, you know, the, the, I think there's a temptation to think of it as, you know, we saw her and like that a lot of this is going to be substitutional or that like people are going to fall in love with, you know, virtual characters and, you know, uh, virtual beings and things like that. And certainly some of that will happen and, and you know, humans can be surprisingly uh, or maybe not surprisingly manipulable, right? Yeah. Uh, emotionally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think that, you know, to me, it's just the latest uh, evolution of, you know, how we have characters, we, these characters we have in our world, the ways in which we're able to interact with them. And I think, uh, you know, those went from books to movies to, um, you know, games. And now virtual beings are the next evolution of that. And the level of interactivity has gone up in each stage. And again, I think it's always, we always do this thing where we look back on the, you know, people who are attached to the last generation sort of think of as the next thing as being weird or foreign. Yeah. Um, but the same way people thought, you know, I don't want to see characters that I love from books represented by movies because that is, you know, somehow like fake or not as good yeah. or, you know, tarnishing it. And yeah, I mean, books are usually better than movies, right? Um, that's usually true. Not always. Really? Um, but that's kind of beside the point. Um, and I think, you know, people said the same thing when characters went from, you know, movies to video games where, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't get to play the character because the character, you know, like the character wouldn't really do that or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and now we're with virtual beings. It's, well, you shouldn't really be able to have a conversation with them. Like it shouldn't be, you shouldn't, you know, interact with them. It shouldn't be your friend. Um, so now in 2029, where we're interacting with virtual beings every day, and remember we're new to 2029. We, yeah. we don't know the, the full flow of it, but um, has that impacted our ability to communicate with humans in real life? Like now that we're so used to interacting with synthetic beings and virtual characters and have that that distance 
Does that impact our human relationships? I don't think so. Why? Um, and the reason why is that, um, first of all, people do crave human relationships above all else, right? I do think that there are going to be, just like we had in the, you know, the 20s, 2000s and the 20 teens, there are going to be people that um, retreat into online worlds, um, you know, and try and, and, you know, feel uncomfortable interacting with, you know, real humans. And certainly like, you know, before virtual beings proliferated, those, those people just play video games or watch movies or just read books. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that, um, you know, one of the challenges I think for companies that are creating these virtual characters is that, you know, you do have to be mindful of the um, emotional impact you can have on people interacting with them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the same, you know, Facebook faced the same issue where, uh, you know, the, the tenor of someone's newsfeed also has an emotional impact on them. Totally. Uh, and so I think that, you know, for all the, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's just one seems much more visceral and, you know, um, impactful to us. Mm. Um, but I think we, we really underestimate how much our emotional state, our mood is, you know, um, affected by other every, every other humans and all the media in our, in our life. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it's, 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 you know, if I have one suggestion, it's that, uh, we don't let everybody else off the hook just because we perceive a, a, a greater degree of intensity from virtual, yep. the experience interactions we have with virtual beings. That makes sense to me. Um, cool. Let's I'm not about letting every, anybody off the hook. I think we have, I think there are strong moral and, and ethical obligations that people that create this stuff have. I agree with that hundred percent. And I think we'll see a lot more focus and attention on that as well as we advance. Um, Let's transport back to okay. 2019. Do you have a sound effect to transport us back? You <laughs> I only want to go the, forward. I only have the virtual <laughs> background. Um, but, uh. <laughs> okay, we'll transport back. Okay. Um, that was a very beautiful picture that you painted of 2029. Let me ask you, what's your research process when you explore new spaces like this? I mean, synthetic reality is so nascent that a lot of people listening to this will probably be their first time <laughs> hearing about yeah, it. Yeah, no, probably, yeah. Um, You've got an amazing grasp on it. How, how do you, in, as a VC, how do you yeah. go about getting that good grasp and understanding of the new category? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we do is we try not to, um, uh, we try to connect the dots after we've seen a lot of dots. So, okay. you know, with a category like synthetic reality, it came out of a lot of the work that we we're doing, you know, tracking and seeing developments in the space, you know, in tech more generally. Mm. And then you sort of start to see, oh, this work with GANs is related to this work with NLP and this work with synthetic speech and this work with virtual beings and this work with video and special effects. And, you know, so you start to see um, some of the commonalities there and some of the, um, the, the things that people are doing. So part of it is just about uh, paying attention and reading a lot every day, which is, okay. uh, you know, I use an RSS reader still. I, I can't believe any, I, I honestly can't understand of anybody who doesn't use one because it is such a competitive advantage and being able to, maybe I shouldn't talk about it, but, um, and being able to, you know, digest and get through a lot of information, uh, quickly because, you know, I have probably subscribed to about a hundred and something, you know, news feeds, um, do you use a mix of what feedly? I use uh, Feedbin uh, with the reader as the front end uh, for that. Um, and that's sort of the mix okay. that I like. Feedly I like, but I don't love. And so um, Feedbin I sort of settled on, uh, which you know costs $20 a year, but it's great. 
Um, and are you doing concerted research into a specific space? Like, are you like, hey, like I'm going to spend the next month like really understanding synthetic reality and like those are the articles I'm going to pay attention to in my feed reader? No, or is it well, just I think you, it's I, you absorb everything. I think that um, what it is is it's not it's it's more. I think this is interesting. I'm going to start following um, you know people in this category. So when I got really focused on like AR, for example, I started, you know, following a bunch of people writing in the space and, um, you know, not just, actually I find sometimes the personal blogs to be a little bit better for this. And there's not, and people don't, they're not, not as many of those there used to be, I guess, of these sort of targeted, uh, you know, sites, but, but following, you know, and trying to understand like what's going on in the category and then, you know, diving a little bit deeper into some of the research when it makes sense, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I'm not an engineer and I think um, on some level, um, you know, like de- doing like, like I understand enough about optics to be able to understand like the challenges of like magically, but I don't need to be like an optical, you know, an optics, you know, engineer or something like sure. that to be able to, um, you know, evaluate some of this stuff. Um, but, uh, and the same thing with synthetic reality. It's like, you know, I'm, I, uh, you know, understanding, you know, how GAN works and, you um, uh, you know, and, and the techniques behind this stuff. And also I think having a, an understanding of some of the um, issues around training data and, you know, how machine learning, you know, works to be able to, you know, when you talk to a startup, being able to sort of really press them on like, well, you know, how did, how are you getting the results you're getting? Like, where is this coming from? And, and it's not just about, um, I'm not trying to like, you know, catch them out or anything. It's really about like trying to understand where's the defensibility layer and what they're yeah. doing. And so when people are using, you know, pu- publicly available, like pre-tagged data sets with publicly available like TensorFlow models, there tends not to be a lot of like long-term defensibility in a business like that, unless you're like super good at like acquiring customers, you know, versus somebody else who could do the same thing, right? In terms of yeah. the product. So, um, you know, uh, you know, I try not to, um, one of the things that I try to do is to have an open enough aperture in terms of the things that I'm looking at that when something new starts to bubble up, I can start to see, again, you can start to see the patterns and connect the dots around um, things here. And so part of it's like, what are people, what are developers playing with building um, in their spare time, messing around with, uh, you know, experimenting with, because they tend to, you know, be people that are, uh, and just when I was reading, leading experimental product at AOL, like our job was, you know, like we got the Apple watch, you know, uh, SDK early. Right. Um, So we were able to like build an Apple watch app, you know, and start to like, just understand like what's here. Um, And uh, you know, it turns out it probably wasn't as amazing an opportunity as we would have liked, but um, but that's sort of how you have to do this stuff is you have to experiment and play with it. And as a VC, you have to be willing to experiment, so to speak, with the places that you pay attention to uh, and be prepared to spend time trying to understand something uh, and not necessarily invest in it. So, we, you know, spent a lot of time with VR, made only really one investment, a company called Rec Room, which pretty happy. They're doing really, really well. But, um, you know, I didn't make 10, in v- 10 VR investments for all the yeah. time that I spent on it. I, but I understood it really well, spent time in it, um, you know, still have, I mean, have like five VR headsets, you know, here. Um, you can't see them, um, but they're around. Um, and, a lot uh, of these things that are bubbling up are quite new, right? And some of them like yeah. VR, like we've been talking about VR for 10 years now, right? Yeah. And like, we're still not there in like, still we're getting there. there, right? Now, now yeah. the Quest is out and like, it's a lot more accessible. How does how does the longer intrinsic time horizons for a lot of these like frontier techs that you work with and invest in how does that affect your decision making as an investor 
and also just like the economics of the fund, right? Like in a B2B yeah. SaaS business, like I know that like they can go from zero to a hundred million dollars in revenue in seven years. And there's like a proven formula there. And like, it makes sense, right? Money in, money out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Synthetic yeah. reality, like it's, you know, who knows what that's going to look like over the next 10 years. And like, maybe it'll blow up 20 years from now. But like, how, how do you take that into account? And how do you, how do you take it into account in the actual fund economics? Yeah. Um, well, fund economics is slightly, I mean, slightly different in that, like, you, you know, what you do want to make sure that you're not over, over allocated to one category. Um, you know, you, you know, we wouldn't put like 50% of the fund into one category, right? So more uh, diversity then in frontier well, tech, because you don't know which space is going to take off. Yeah. And I, I, yes. And I think part of it is, um, you know, one reason why we do our camps is that it allows us to, you know, do a bunch, do like six to 10 investments in a category really early, not have to deploy that much capital. Um, because the investments are relatively small, but we get to understand um, the category really well. We get to work with the companies really well, but it also helps us understand the contours of where we think the market opportunities are based on the time that we spent with those companies. And so a lot of times, you know, we'll do a camp and then the company that we, the companies that we invest in after the camp, like outside of the camp are the ones that like we think are, you know, are going to blow up. Right. Um, which uh, not that I mean, we've had at least like one or two breakouts out of every camp so far, which is pretty amazing. Um, but you know, part of the purpose of camp is to help us understand the category so that we can see where the opportunities are so that we can start to map out the opportunities in that category and understand where the early opportunities are and where the later opportunities might be. So like mm -hmm. with synthetic reality, um, you know, where the early opportunities are, are something like deep trace, which is around deep fake detection. And we think that, um, you know, I, I, I think that the, um, the risks for the, like around deep fakes are slightly overblown because I think that um, it's one of these things where we've seen more articles about the risk then we've actually seen damage totally. yeah. so far, um, which I think is good because I think it's starting and to faking educate. Is in, it's not a new thing. Like there's been fakes in different formats again since the beginning of time, like early you day fake, forgery. You can, like, you can fake people with text, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's it, it, you know, like you can go like Photoshop a fake tweet and like that's your tricking or, people, right? Or a Sharpie. Yeah. Um, it, it's, so it's, <laughs> it's, but I think that like educating people around the fact that this is a thing and that like they need to be like, you know, more skeptical in the way that they view things. I think that's good, right? And so I, I'm not as concerned that in, you know, maybe famous last words a year from now, but, and, uh, um, you know, right after the election, but, um, you know, that like deep fakes will probably not be as big of an impact on the election as, I think there'll be a lot of people like that will try, but I think a lot of, I, I think it won't work, but you can see how, um, you know, tools for helping us detect this stuff will be valuable, um, you know, and not just in terms of media or social media, but actually, um, you know, I, I think for um, uh, forensics, right, for, uh, you know, court cases for police, mm. um, like imagine if like I went to the police with a video, which I claimed I pulled off my ring cam of you breaking into my car. Yeah. Right. I could fake that. Right. Like totally. I have enough evidence right now from this call. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I'd been recording it. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it was so it's like, masks on the episode. Yeah. I was like, hey, like this guy, you know, like, I mean, I guess he, you know, like we did this podcast and he, like, I pissed him off or something. He like stole my car. Saw his office and this fancy yeah. furniture. Yeah. And like, if I go to the police right now, they're going to see this video and they're, are they going to, how much would they question it? Right. Oh. Um, and I think that that's where you can see something like Deep Trace being, you know, uh, like my, my mom's boyfriend used to be the head of uh, chief of police in our hometown, in my hometown. Yeah. And, um, and I was having dinner with him and I was, he was like, what are you investing in these days? And I was explaining Deep Trace to him and he's like, Oh, wow. We would use, like, of course we would use that. Like we would pay a few thousand dollars a month for a subscription to that. Um, if we could take every video that someone claimed came off their ring camera or their phone, 
uh, and we could just do a quick check to make sure that it wasn't manipulated. Like, like why wouldn't you, you know? Um, and so that's where I think that like for all the sort of, you know, Twitter, Facebook kind of hype around this stuff, I actually think there are a lot of really clear, um, you know, forensic based uh, applications of this stuff that I think are going to be really, really valuable. Um, you can imagine like divorce, you know, there are going to be divorce cases where people are going to do this stuff. I mean, it's, it's, as the tools become democratized, there are these malicious, you know, uses of it. And so I think having tools to help us better, uh, you know, identify and, and combat that stuff um, is going to be really, really helpful. Yeah, I think there's certainly lots of powerful use cases for, for all kinds of the different frontier texts that we've talked about today, including deep fakes. Um, something we haven't seen, though, is a ton of grand slams in frontier tech. Like, there hasn't been any, like, massive or many, as many in, like, you know, boring B2B SaaS, uh, big $10 billion exits. Is that something that changes... Again, well, how do you define frontier? How do you define frontier tech? Because Snap is a Snap is a uh, Snapchat's an AR company, right? Um, you know, face filters are AR. Yeah. Uh, there's no way around that. And that you know, what's face? I mean, they're maybe they're not 10 billion today, but you know, they're certainly like a uh, you know a valuable company, right? So I actually think that you know, I, I think that frontier by definition is something that's changing, and things that were frontiers, you know, uh, you know, 10 years ago are commonplace today. You think about you know, the real-time web, that was frontier technology, you know, 10 or 12, 15 years ago. Um, yep. And now it's very, very mature and we take it for granted. Um, but, you know, the fact that you could, do, the things that you could do in terms of, you know, having like these real-time synchronous experiences or, you know, having the ability to deliver content, you know, at scale to, you know, hundreds of millions of people, um, that is frontier technology in its own way, right? And I think that, um, you know, it, mobile was a frontier technology at one point. Um, and you know, you're sure. not going to tell me there aren't a lot of multi-billion-dollar companies in mobile, right? So I'm, you know, I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, I think it's partly about how you define this stuff, and I think one of the things that's kind of fun um, is that it does, you know, change and it's, it evolves, and and um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I think um, one of the the things that I try to challenge myself to be is, um, you know, to to make sure that I am not being overly rigid in the way that I am trying to think about and construct these characters and uh, categories. Mm -hmm. And so we connect the dots um, and we, you know, think there's something here. Um, but you have to be like flexible enough to sort of see where things go. And again, this is one reason why we like to do the camps and do these kind of early, uh, make these early bets because it forces us to really try to think through, you know, where this stuff goes. And, and um, you know, you can be, there are lots of ways to be wrong, um, you know, with this stuff um, and only so many ways to be right. But I think, um, you know, so far with the performance of, you know, Fund One, which has been really, really strong, what we found is that there are, you know, opportunities that emerge. Um, sometimes they aren't always super intuitive uh, when you start um, and companies sort of evolve. I mean, I think, you know, where Hugging Face, for example, is going around um, natural language processing and like the, the tools that they're, you know, offering there. Um, it's not where they started, but yeah. it turns out that, um, you know, it, it ends up being an enormous, you know, opportunity that is really in sync with where the stuff is going. And, and you know, it, it also is sort of on the edge of a lot of things, right? Where it's like NLP is certainly can enable synthetic experiences for especially for virtual beings, but it isn't necessarily in and of itself synthetic in the sense that we like to think of it as synthetic. It's more totally. you know, pure AI ML. Mm -hmm. um, Supportive. Yeah, um, but that's okay, right? And I think that if we, um, you know, we don't want to be in this place where we're sort of saying, being so rigid on how we define the buckets that, you know, we're, we're missing things that we think are interesting, um, yep. you know, and so it's why, you know, we'll sometimes 
dip into a category that we wouldn't necessarily do just because we think there's something really interesting about the approach that they're doing. So, you know, we invested in Dirty Lemon, for example, which they make a functional beverage, right? They make like a detox lemonade. That's our first product. Um, Coca yeah, Coca-Cola just uh, led their Series A. And, um, you know, we wouldn't normally, we actually not really a fan of investing in direct to consumer, but the way that they were doing direct to consumer with this sort of like conversational SMS based commerce with like a lot of interesting like NLP being layered into it and they bought Poncho and to, you know, expand their NLP, you know, technology as part of it, that kind of got us really excited, right? It's like, yeah. you know, I mean, the, the drinks are, uh, uh, you know, the drinks are great, right? And, they, you know, very popular, but um, if they were just selling, a, if it was just about a beverage, we'd be like, yeah, that's fine, not for us. Um, <laughs> so it's when they're doing something really interesting on the on the interface side, um, you know, that sort of a new kind of differentiator and sort of like the technological approach that they're taking to, you know, interacting with the consumer, you know, that got us, you know, really interested. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, cool, let's wrap up with a quick fire round. So I've got just four fun questions. Yeah. Uh, book or movie recently on the future of tech that you can't shut up about? Oh, um, book or movie? Well, it's funny because I actually have very, very read very, I've uh, seen very few movies uh, lately. Um, I didn't see a single movie in the theater last year. Really? Yeah. What in about fact, this I've year? I've only seen one in the theater this year. Me too. Joker is uh, the only one that I've seen this year. Uh, I saw Into the Spider Verse um, okay. in January. Um, um, books then? But, but books, um, you know, I was uh, one that I was reading uh, was called Seeing Like a State which uh, I thought was, it's not new, um, but a really interesting book about how, um, you know, sort of the rise of, you know, like the bureaucratic state tries to, um, you know, the ways in which be needing to, uh, you know, measure and uh, create kind of like accounting and bureau bureaucratic systems requires, um, you know, the state to sort of take these sort of messy disorganized systems of whether they're, you know, villages or economies or whatever, and start to sort of like organize them and streamline them and make them kind of clean. Uh, okay. And, you know, and how it ends up having, you know, to be able to have this sort of abstraction, um, abstract representation of a system, you have to leave out a lot of, you know, leave, leave out a lot of data, like leave out a lot of things. Mm. Um, because any representation has to leave something out, right? Yeah. Um, because otherwise you're just overwhelmed with information. You can't yeah, yeah, yeah. really make any decision. So not a representation really, anymore. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. It's like Borges with the like map, which is the, you know, the size of the country that it's, you know, mapping, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, um, so, you know, I really like enjoyed that book because it was um, not that it's necessarily like that surprising, but it was just like a really, uh, uh, it was less new the argument. Um, it was more like the, the actual case studies that he went through where he's like talking about like forestry in Germany and like, you know, like the tax system in like pre-revolutionary France and, uh, you know, and stuff like that. And that was like, I really was like nerding out on that stuff. I loved it. Cool. I'll add it to the list. Uh, what about top three synthetic reality startups that you've seen recently? Oh, uh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I'd say resemble.ai, which is doing a synthetic speech, uh, and their product is like heads, you know, head is in head and shoulders above everybody else in terms of what they're doing. Um, and they just released a new kind of like cloning system. They're Canadian, uh, right? They are Canadian, uh, and they also. Uh, yeah. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we we all know each other. <laughs> yeah, I assume it's a. I, I mean, I, I don't know how big or small our community is, uh, but uh, 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 super talented, and but also doing some really interesting stuff about like helping people protect their voice once it's cloned and cool. you know, that. So, uh, really, really great team. Um, uh, love Oxhuman, which is doing uh, virtual pop stars. Okay. And uh, you know they have they're using AI to generate the music. 
and then they have um, these sort of synthetic characters, virtual beings that are the pop stars, and and their plan is to um, you know introduce. Uh, their goal is to introduce like they get to the point where they're introducing like one a day. Um, wow, where, that's cool. And, and sort of sort of look at like you know what are these like micro genres that are trending on Spotify and like create virtual artists and see if they stick. And if they don't yeah. stick, like, you shut it down and you try something new. Uh, and they just released an, a compilation album on Spotify. And um, some of it's actually pretty good. That was the thing that was like, uh, you know, it's like for I'll AI. Yeah, it's you should you should listen to it. Um, if you're into sort of um, like glitchy electronic music, um, <laughs> you know, uh, which some of which I am. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's enjoyable. Um, so one uh, that's one. And then, uh, third one, man, where do I want to, it's hard to pick. I don't want to like pick too many favorites out of the, uh, the last, uh, camp. Um, but you know, I think a third that I really, uh, like right now is face emoji, okay. which, um, they have, in fact, I could have turned on the, the camera for this, for the show. You can flip, flip on the face emoji camera during uh, video calls now. Let me see. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, yeah, give it a shot. Let me see if it'll work. I gotta switch the camera. Synthetic um, background and synthetic face. <laughs> it may not work because I'm not sure if I've updated it recently. Um, let's see. Will it work? Did I just, I think I just. Oh yeah, it's go. working. Yeah. Oh, so, hey. That's so cool. <laughs> um, I can do the rest of the call as my, as my avatar. That's hilarious. Um, so. Um, cool. Yeah, so, and, and the thing about it is I, th I think I can also like change it Oh no, I didn't make a change in real time. Um, oh yeah, because I actually have like one avatar in my account in this, on this account. Um, but uh, let's see if it goes back. Um, so I just like love what they're doing with like the playfulness of it and like giving people like fun tools. Um, yeah. But also like you can do it on Twitch now. You can, you know, and I think one of the things that's really underappreciated about, I mean, it's mainly people doing in the app and like creating like stories and content and, you know, sharing it with their friends. Um, but, you know, if you are, uh, you know, a, a, uh, uh, you know, someone who like, you know, wants to st uh, stream your gameplay on Twitch or Mixer, for example, but you don't necessarily feel comfortable having your face out there, which yep. you know, for a lot of like, uh, you know, especially for a lot of women, um, sure. you know, the privacy issue is a really big thing. And so it's kind of lets you participate without having to like give up your privacy. That's cool. Um, so it's kind of a fun thing. So I, I, I love what they're doing. And, um, you know, the camera part is like, yeah, that was awesome. You know, I'm going to yeah. download it. Yeah. I should, um, you should check it out. What about, uh, last two questions. Who's okay. the number one frontier tech person that we should all be following on Twitter? That's a great question. I'm not sure there's, I'm trying to think of who's like really focused on frontier tech. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like you should follow my partner, Matt Hartman, because I feel like he's um, just so good at this stuff. But um, Matt is going to be a guest on the yeah, show. Matt's going to be a guest. So maybe um, I shouldn't pump up Matt too much. Um, yeah, no, Matt's good. Um, you know, I mean, uh, Michael Dempsey from Compound uh, is also really like his writing. Yeah, um, I'm not sure how active he's on Twitter these days, though. He's um, uh, he's pretty active. Yeah. I follow him. I like I consume a lot of his stuff. Okay. Um, um, last question. Yeah. Sure. SF or NYC? Uh, <laughs> do you ask that to everybody or just me? <laughs> just you. <laughs> just me. Uh, so I'm in SF now. I was in New York for almost 15 years. I moved here uh, back to SF about four years ago. And, I was in uh, SF before this and just moved yeah. to New York six months ago. So, Well, what do you like better? Other questions for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I would say New York is a good place to be young um, and San Francisco is not. 
um, I would say. Uh, and so like, I couldn't imagine being here in like my twenties. Um, mm. And I was here in my twenties and then I moved to New York when I was like 26. Uh, and um, so the things I like about both places, I think New York is, um, you know, is a true, is like a global city in the sense that it has, um, you know, it's big, it has so much, it has a lot of things besides tech. Uh, you know, I think here, especially as San Francisco has gotten more expensive, that it, it has become a little bit more one dimensional culturally, yeah. which yeah. I, I don't love. And so, you know, a lot of the friends, people that I was friends with in New York who involved with, you know, art or fashion or, you know, non-tech publishing, um, and art, you know, the art world and, and things like that. Um, you know, there's not a lot of that here, uh, com compare, especially compared with 20 years ago when I first lived here. So I'd say, you know, LA has taken a lot of that energy um, from here. And it's gotten taken a little bit from New York too, frankly. But, um, you know, I'm lucky that I have, you know, two partners in New York and I get to go back to New York and work with them and the team uh, pretty regularly. Um, yeah. Not as often as I'd like, but... Um, you get to escape the cold as well during the winters. Yeah, so it's a good way to like split the difference, and and I get to go back, uh, you know, five six times a year, and um, still enjoy you know things that are nice about San Francisco the rest of the time. That's a good answer. <laughs> good balanced answer. Uh, my opinions are much stronger for New York. I did not love San Francisco, but we can talk about that another time. No, I mean, there's you know, I mean, there's a lot that is frustrating about San Francisco, and I think. Uh, I think if I was someone who, I mean, like, you know, I have, I have a nice house. I mean, not, you know, not fancy house, but you know, it's like very comfortable. I'm very, you know, it's like comfortable. I have more space than I have in New York, uh, had in New York and, you know, it's like, I work from home most of the time, but this is, you know, my, my, not my house, uh, <laughs> uh, despite appearances. Um, and, uh, yeah, my house is filled with, uh, it's like, my house is also a co-working space. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is your synthetic house. Yeah, my synthetic house. But, um, you know, but for someone who like, likes to keep kind of a low key lifestyle and just hang out at home and hang out with my kids and play Fortnite, like, you know, San Francisco is fine for that. Like I'm not, when I lived in New York, I was not taking advantage of a lot of things that were great about being in New York in terms of like the culture and being able to go out. I just, I couldn't go out at night and yeah. do a lot of those things. So there's not, you're not missing as much of that in San Francisco. So it's fine. You know, I'm just happy to honestly hang out at home, read books, hang on with my kids and go to sleep by nine o'clock. Sounds and great. San Francisco is perfectly suited for that. Nice. Cool. So. Uh, thank you so much. That was amazing. Lots of fun today. Thank you for having me. Like I, I, I appreciate the, the very thoughtful questions and uh, the prep that you put into this. Yeah, of course. It's my job. <laughs>